Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our attention to your word. And so I pray that you would focus us now on your word. Pray that we would receive it gladly, that we would desire to let it characterize our lives, that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday, I opened the message by talking about the attributes of God. I talked about attributes of greatness on one hand, attributes of goodness on the other. Uh, Attributes of greatness having to do with who God is in and of himself. Attributes of goodness having to do with who he is in relationship to us. And we praise him then that he is both great, who he is in and of himself, and good, who he is in relationship to us. I remember when I was a little boy saying that table grace, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, and thinking, if you've said he's great, you've already said he's good, right? No, great is different from good. And my confusion as a kid was, was even furthered by Tony the Tiger, who said of Sugar Frosted Flakes, they're great, great. Well, somebody was listening, and so on Monday, I received a gift from somebody in the congregation I got a box of sugar-frosted flakes, and uh, they're good. They're not great. Uh, They're good. Um, So if if I say anything today about, like, replacing my 20-year-old pickup truck, I I wonder if somebody's going to be listening. I'll see what happens tomorrow. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 14. And uh, if you didn't bring one, please do open one, grab one from the chair in front of you, Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, and just uh, notice how it begins. It begins with the word so. What do we do with the word so? It's referring to something. Some translations actually tie verse 12 into the section that preceded verses 7 through 11 and make 12 the conclusion of that section, suggesting that the so uh, is, is an inference of verses 12, uh, 7 through 11. That is possible. But you'll notice something else as you look at the rest of the chapter um, what you'll notice is that each of the remaining sections in this chapter talk about what we do. Verse 12, do to others what you wish they would do to you. Verse 13, enter the narrow gate, something we do. Verses 14 to 20, you'll know false prophets by what they do, by the fruit of their lives. Verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of the Father. Verses 24 to 27, the wise man is the one who hears Jesus' words and does them. You see how the doing of God's word just fills out the rest of this chapter. Jesus is beginning here to wrap up the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's not just drawing an inference from verses 7 through 11. He's he's wrapping up the whole Sermon on the Mount. 
In fact, the title I was going to give this message that was published a month ago in, in the newsletter was Jesus Sums Up. He's really beginning the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So with that in mind, let's get a look at verses 12 to 14. Let me just read it again so you can get the flow of it. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Have you ever wondered why these three verses are under one single heading in our Bible? Doesn't it look to you like there are, are two different subjects being addressed here? Verse 12, where Jesus is uh, summarizing the law and the prophets, and then verses 13 and 14, where he is describing uh, the path that leads either to life or to destruction. How did these two things come under one heading? Could they possibly be related? I'd like to suggest this morning that, in fact, they are. So as we look at the truths contained in verse 12 and and in verses 13 and 14, uh, we're going to also see how these things tie together. And I believe that the thing that ties them together is that Jesus is talking in this section about the Christian life. And if I were to give a summary of this section, if I were to put a heading over it, I would say the Christian life. And while the Christian life is easy to understand, it's hard to live. So let's take a look at this passage about the Christian life. Two things you need to know. The first is this. It's really simple. The Christian life is really simple. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's a summary of the whole Old Testament. To the chagrin of the Pharisees, Jesus brought 613 commandments down to two in what we call the Great Commandment. It was read earlier, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 39, where Jesus just says, it comes down to loving God and loving others. I think we've got a slide for that, do we? Yes, we do. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's first and greatest commandment. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Brings 613 commandments down to two and says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole summary of the Old Testament is right here. Then in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus gives a single new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The standard then for our love needs to be the love that Jesus showed us. We love as he loved us. Now, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sums up the whole Old Testament, very similar to what he said in Matthew 22. This sums up the law and the prophets. He sums up the whole Old Testament in one simple instruction that anyone can remember. Do to others what you'd have others do to you. It's really simple. I mean, I remember learning that before I could read. 
you may notice that in the great commandment there, Jesus talks about loving God and loving people, and you'll notice also that in the new commandment, he talks about loving others as he loved us. And you'll remember that whenever we are commanded to love in Scripture, it's always the same word that's used. The word for love is agape. Agape love is not based on emotions, it's not devoid of emotions, but it's not based on emotions. Agape love is rooted instead in the will. Agape love is desiring God's best for someone and then applying ourselves to bringing that about. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, do to others what you would have others do to you because that's how we show agape love. We show agape love by doing and the standard is high. He says, do for others what you would want others to do for you. It's a high standard. Uh, by the way, we saw something similar a couple weeks ago with regard to judging in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 7. The standard you use to judge others will be used on you. So in the case of judging, we need to ask ourselves, how do I want to be judged? That's a high standard. Our motivation for doing things for ourselves is enormous, right? There is very little I wouldn't do for me. You're probably like me in that regard. So when Paul, for instance, says husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies, he's setting the bar pretty high. Whatever you would do for you, do for her. And Jesus applies the same standard here, do for others, what you wish others would do for you. He's taking our natural love for ourselves and saying, love others that way. So Jesus gives us the golden rule and says, that's how I want you to live. Can you remember that? And we say, of course we can. It's really simple. But being simple doesn't make it easy. The command given in verse 12 Interestingly, appears elsewhere in ancient literature, but everywhere else it's stated, it's stated in the negative. Uh, there was a pretty famous rivalry between two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, started about 20 BC and continued into the time of Jesus. And around 20 BC, there was a man who was considering becoming a Jew. He was a Gentile looking to become a Jew, and he approached Rabbi Shammai and said, I'll become a Jew if you can quote the whole law while standing on one foot. Shammai ran him away. <laughs> then he went to Hillel, made the same offer. I'll become a Jew if you can quote the whole law while standing on one foot. And Hillel answered him, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, the rest is only commentary. Now, what Jesus says in Matthew, 12, or in Matthew 7, verse 12, goes way beyond that, simply by taking what he stated as negative and turning it into a positive. It makes it much harder to do. It's not just don't 
do what you wouldn't want done to you, but rather do for others what you would want them to do for you. I was uh, working on this message this week when I I noticed uh, a white van uh, coming down the driveway of the church. It was the Milligan family bringing back tables and chairs from Leonora's graduation party. And my first thought, I'll be honest, was Hillel's summary of the Old Testament. Don't do what is hateful to you, so stay out of their way. Don't interfere. But then verse 12 kind of grabbed me, where Jesus says it's more than not doing what you wouldn't want, it's doing what you would want. And so I got up and lent a hand. See the difference between Hillel's summary and Jesus' summary of the Old Testament? It's enormous. It's not just about what you shouldn't do, but it causes us to think about all we would want done for us if we were on the receiving end. What do you wish others would do for you? You might say, I really wish they'd treat me fairly. I wish they'd show me some kindness. I wish they'd cut me some slack. I wish they'd respect me for who I am. I wish they wouldn't prejudge me. I wish they wouldn't write me off because I'm too young. I wish they wouldn't write me off because I'm too old. I wish they'd encourage me. I wish they'd pray for me. I wish they'd forgive me. I wish they wouldn't hold a grudge. I wish they'd at least try to see this issue from my perspective. The list goes on and on. You could add to it yourselves. And when we have that thought in our mind about what we would like people to do for us, Jesus says, okay, do that for them. And we say, well, now, wait a minute. They haven't earned it. And Jesus says, do you want to have to earn it? Did you earn your way with me? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We didn't earn God's favor. It was a gift of grace from him. That's the gospel. We don't earn our way with God. In fact, we can't earn our way with God. We're completely undeserving, but he gives grace to the undeserving. So give grace to others. If you've received grace from God, you should know how. And you might say, but that's hard. Yeah, it is. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really costly. Think of what it cost Jesus to give grace to you. And so we don't miss the point. Jesus talks next about a hard way to live and a narrow gate to enter. Verses 13 and 14. That tells us that not only is the Christian life really simple, but it's also really hard. Look at verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
It's really hard. Jesus talks about two gates, one wide, one narrow. Two roads, one easy, one hard. Two groups of travelers, the many and the few. Two modes of travel, one drifting along, one searching to find the narrow gate. And two destinations, one is destruction and the other is life. And that tells me the Christian life is hard. Finding the wide gate, that's easy. Walking the road that's broad and level is easy. Following the crowd is easy. Drifting along is easy. But finding that narrow gate is hard. Walking the path that's narrow and hilly is hard. Standing alone is hard. But one way leads to destruction and the other way leads to life. And that tells me that when we get to the end of our journey, we may say that was hard, but we'll also say it was worth it. That's why it's the journey of faith. Our motivation comes as we look ahead to what's in store for us at our destination. We walk by faith, not by sight. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. By faith, we follow him. By faith, we follow the hard path and enter the narrow gate. By faith, we know it will be worth it. The narrow way means pursuing the kingdom of God. It means saying yes to the things that really matter. And to do that, you have to say no to some other things. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. That's what makes it all worthwhile, traveling the difficult road. It's a hard road. What makes it worthwhile is what's waiting for us at our destination. The narrow way leads to life. Make the kingdom of God the object, then, of your focus. You'll find life is to be measured by narrowness and depth rather than by shallowness and breadth. Now, to follow that path, we'll need to leave a few things behind. Let me just mention a few. The first thing we need to leave behind is the complacency that causes us just to follow the crowd. Because the gate is hard to find. Going with the flow results in going on the broad road. It's going through a wide gate, going with the crowd. And not to decide is to decide. The crowd just sweeps you up and takes you along. What happens when you lie in bed and wonder if you're going to get up and spend some time with the Lord? What happens when you're watching a TV show And it concludes, and you sit there while the other one starts, and you're wondering if you ought to watch the next one as well. 
What happens when you listen to some unwholesome talk and wonder if you ought to just leave? Floating along will just carry you with the crowd. Floating along generally implies drift. Anyone who's ever fished from a boat understands that. You look at where the current is taking you because you can't stand still. It takes conscious action to choose your destination. Part of finding life is choosing to live on purpose, choosing to search for the narrow gate rather than just drifting along with the crowd. So leave the complacency behind. Second, uh, we'll need to leave the crowd behind because those who travel the narrow path and go through the narrow gate are few. Living by your convictions will require you to say no to the crowd. Live by light of God's revelation, not by the standards of the culture, because the standards of the culture change, and God's word never does. And that may seem tremendously narrow to most people, but then again, most people are just drifting. Jesus calls us to actively pursue the narrow way. Fact is, most people are headed the wrong way and they don't want to change. We'll have little success changing the crowd, but we can make an impact by investing in a few individuals. Leave the crowd behind. One more thing that we'll need to leave behind is the baggage because the gate is narrow. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to carry a suitcase through a turnstile? It's narrow. You can't carry baggage. Some of the baggage that we'll need to leave behind comes in the form of comforts. We accumulate so much and we rationalize that we really need it all. How much do we really need? Tina and I have gotten a little lesson in this, uh, in this adventure called Interim Ministry where we just pack up and go someplace new every couple of years. Uh, most of our stuff is in Wausau, and, and we have learned we don't need it to live. Uh, we're enjoying life here in Janesville uh, without so much stuff. We can leave it behind. Some of the baggage that we need to leave behind not only comes in the form of comforts, but comes in the form of hang-ups. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul lists a number of hang-ups that we need to leave behind. He says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And he lists a bunch more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." It's amazing to see all of those things written to a first century church. We, we tend to think we're the folks who invented all of those hang-ups. They had them back then, and it's even more amazing to look at uh, lists of things like that in every epistle in the New Testament. God has been calling his people to leave those things behind ever since 
Christ died to save us from those things. Leave the baggage behind, the gate is narrow. Christian life is really simple and it's also really hard. It's easy to understand and it's hard to actually do. I knew a guy who uh, was a natural evangelist. He could witness to anybody in any setting. Uh, It was amazing. He would tell me stories about people that he had led to Christ. He told me about times when he would go into a bar and talk to the bartender and say, I'd like to make just a brief announcement, if I may. And he'd get permission. And so he would get everybody's attention in the bar, and he would say, if I could tell you something that you could do that would guarantee that you would go to heaven when you die, and it would be easy to do, would you be interested? And then he offered to talk with anyone who was interested. And he told me that he won a lot of people to Christ that way. I admired his boldness to go and do that sort of thing. But I still wonder about the part where he says, if it would be easy to do. Is it easy to follow Christ? What's it mean, easy to do? Pray this prayer and then you can go back to the thing you were doing before, knowing that you've just guaranteed yourself a spot in heaven? My Bible tells me the way is hard. The gospel is really easy to understand. Jesus took your penalty. Jesus died in your place to forgive you for your sins, to give you a relationship with God that goes on forever if you would just put your trust in him. But as easy as it is to understand... It's hard to follow through on it. It asks for a total life response. It's not just pray a prayer and then now you can get back to whatever it was you were doing before. It changes everything. In light of what Jesus has done for me, how can I respond to him? That's the question it asks of each of us. Isaac Watts put it well when he said this, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Christian life is really simple, but it's really hard. It's not just pray a prayer and then get back to whatever it was you were doing before. It calls for a total life response to what Jesus has done for you. And I would urge you, if you have not, make that response today and tomorrow and the day after that. Make your life a response to what Jesus has done for you. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you've not called us to an easy life, 
but you have offered to forgive us our sin, to take that load off of our shoulders, to set us free, and to allow us to live a life that glorifies you, one that we will look forward to living fully with you when we join you in heaven. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has not put their trust in Jesus for salvation, if there's anyone here that's thinking they're good enough, I pray that you would bring that person to recognize that there's nothing that we can do to atone for our sin, but that Jesus did it all. And that by trusting in him, we can be forgiven the enormous load, the enormous debt of our sin and be welcomed into your very presence and begin a new life with you, one that will finally be consummated when we are in your presence. So Father, I pray that if there's someone here that needs to begin that journey today, they would. They would just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me my sin and come into my heart. Let me live for you. Father, thank you that the way isn't easy, but that Jesus went that way before us, and then he beckons us to follow. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.